Hello, this is Dean Hess, Managing Editor of Respiratory Care. We are pleased that this month's podcast is sponsored by Massimo. Massimo is helping clinicians and care teams provide excellent care for their patients, both in the hospital and at home. With advanced monitoring parameters and powerful connectivity tools, Massimo offers a range of hospital and home-based solutions designed to support chronic care management, surge capacity efforts, and more. Whether inside or beyond the hospital, Massimo's remote monitoring solutions and hospital automation platform help providers seamlessly manage multiple patients simultaneously, providing data to help them identify when intervention may be required. Visit Massimo.com to learn more. And now let's hear what is in the April issue of the journal. Hi, welcome to the Restory Care April 2022 podcast and editor's commentary. This is Rich Branson. I'm editor-in-chief of Restory Care. This month's Editor's Choice by Van Dyke and colleagues evaluates global and regional tidal volume distribution in spontaneously breathing mechanically ventilated children. They measured tidal volume and expiratory lung volume and calculated the center of ventilation using EIT during two modes of ventilation and a reduction in breath rate or pressure support. The median center of ventilation was 50% and was not different between the two modes of ventilation. With a reduction in pressure support, causing the patient to produce more respiratory muscle effort, the median center of ventilation shifted towards dependent lung regions. The authors concluded that allowing spontaneous breathing following recovery of respiratory failure in these pediatric patients did not negatively impact either end expiratory lung volume or distribution of tidal volume. Chaffetz et al. provide commentary regarding, regarding monitoring with electrical impedance tomography and how this data might be used clinically in pediatric patients. Harnoy et al. studied nine volunteers receiving aerosolized saline to evaluate devices used to mitigate aerosol dispersion into the environment. Particle counters were used to measure fugitive aerosols at one and three feet from the participants. They found that fugitive aerosols were greater with a small volume nebulizer than a vibrating mesh nebulizer and greater with a face mask than a, rather than a mouthpiece. Mitigation devices, including filters, were effective at reducing environmental contamination. Lee and co-workers provide a similar study evaluating fugitive aerosols during aerosol delivery via high-flow nasal cannula. They evaluated small volume nebulizers and vibrating mesh nebulizers with two different high-flow nasal cannula devices. Fugitive aerosols were measured as the study before. They found one high-flow nasal cannula device provided an inhaled dose from the nebulizer six times greater than the other, as well as greater fugitive aerosols as a consequence. Placing a surgical mask over the cannula and over the patient, the model's face, or the patient's face, um, effectively reduced fugitive aerosols. Quatch provides commentary on both of these papers, suggesting that the key mitigation of fugitive aerosols is the proper use of personal protective equipment by respiratory therapists. This has been an important issue over the COVID-19 epidemic where at times um, respiratory therapists and physicians as well reduce the number of aerosol therapy treatments as a concern to try to reduce contamination of the environment and caregivers. 
I think the real aspect here is to only give aerosol therapy that's need necessary based on patient requirements, as well as the use of personal protective equipment by the caregivers. El Shafe and others can performed a bench study of aerosol delivery during continuous high-frequency oscillation for airway clearance during mechanical ventilation. This is a terminology issue the journal always has trouble with. High-frequency oscillation is what we think of as support for a neonate with a high-frequency oscillator. This is more high-frequency pulsations delivered to the airway to try and move and mobilize um, secretions in the airway. The investigators placed a jet nebulizer or a vibrating mesh nebulizer attached to the manifold or between the endotracheal tube and the ventilator circuit. Albuterol was aerosolized and collected from filters for measurement of drug delivery. Placement of the jet nebulizer at the manifold resulted in minimal albuterol delivery to the model. Use of the vibrating mesh nebulizer at the endotracheal tube delivered a dose six times the jet nebulizer dose. Placing the vibrating mesh nebulizer at the inlet of the humidifier delivered twice the dose compared to the jet nebulizer. These issues apply to devices, the, in this case the MetaNeb or even IPV from percussion air, that aerosol delivery through entrainment of, in the device is not very effective if you really need that medication to create bronchodilation. Walsh and Liu evaluated the impact of a vibrating mesh nebulizer on in vitro activity of ribavirin. They grew and infected human epithelial type 2 cells and primary epithelial cells with respiratory syncytial virus. Non-nebulized control and aerosolized ribavirin were compared to untreated controls using polymerase chain reaction, or PCR, something we've all become familiar with now because of COVID-19 testing, to determine the quantity of the virus in the cultures. They concluded that the effectiveness of ribavirin was unaffected by the vibrating mesh nebulizer. This was a concern that perhaps the, there was a physical change to the drug that would result in it not working as well. Um, most of you remember using the SPAG device to deliver ribavirin back when it was popular to do so. This is an interesting study, um, but the indication for aerosolizing ribavirin um, still remains to be elucidated. Haynes and Fishwick verified blood gas quality controls of assayed quality control materials and calculated the mean and ranges from a series of measurements. Current standards from CLIA require laboratories to calculate the mean plus or minus two standard deviations for their own blood gas machines. They found that manufacturer reported values were far wider than required by the two standard deviation threshold, validating the need for labs to verify manufacturer provided quality controls within their own laboratories. This is an AARC clinical practice guideline recommendation as well. Behans et al. performed a double-blind trial comparing aerosolized salbutamol to normal saline in newborns with transient tachypnea of newborn. Measured clinical, they measured clinical outcomes at 30 minutes, one hour, and two hours, which included oxygen requirements and the transient tachypnea of the newborn clinical score. They concluded that newborns who received salbutamol had reduced oxygen requirements and shorter duration of respiratory support, both oxygenation, CPAP, or NIV, but there were no differences in length of stay, adverse, adverse events, or other measures. Anagi and Angel evaluated bronchodilator testing in subjects with airflow obstruction to differentiate chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and asthma COPD overlap. In a large group of subjects with baseline FEV1 to force vital capacity ratio of 0.7, pre and post bronchodilator spirometry was performed. 
they found that spirometry performed without bronchodilator testing may lead to misclassification of asthma COPD overlap and resulted in an overdiagnosis of COPD by 39%. Zhang et al. compared bilevel airway pressure ventilation and continuous positive airway pressure for prevention of extubation failure in infants after cardiac surgery. Subjects were randomized to BiPAP or CPAP following extubation. The main outcome variable was reintubation within 48 hours. Of course, this is really just non-invasive ventilation versus CPAP. There were no differences in reintubation rate or duration of respiratory support. Both groups had improved oxygenation and relief of respiratory distress with the application of positive airway pressure. Not surprisingly, the patients who were on non-invasive ventilation had improved oxygenation and carbon dioxide elimination compared to CPAP. One supports oxygenation, the other supports oxygenation and ventilation. Gomez Zamora and others evaluated the role of diaphragmatic ultrasound in predicting failure of non-invasive ventilation and hypo-nasal cannula in infants with bronchiolitis. Diaphragmatic excursion, diaphragmatic inspiratory expiratory time, and the fraction of diaphragmatic thickening were recorded at admission 24 and 48 hours. They found that ultrasound evaluation of diaphragmatic thickening predicted treatment of both non-invasive ventilation and high-flow nasal cannula, but did not predict which patients would actually go on to need invasive ventilation. Willis and co-workers performed a retrospective review of children diagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea and prescribed positive airway pressure therapy who also underwent a follow-up polysomnography titration of their airway pressures. The initial airway pressures were selected by auto-titrating device, CPAP devices. The majority of the subjects um, were initially prescribed with auto-titrating positive airway pressure and empiric settings. Following the follow-up polysomnography titration, 78% of subjects had changes in their airway pressure therapy settings. However, adherence was not increased following titration. They concluded that while the titration may optimize settings, that that alone did not improve adherence to therapy. Baran and others provide a systematic review of prone positioning on outcomes in non-intubated patients, what's become the so-called awake prone positioning with COVID-19. Prone positioning improves gas exchange and in some select studies resulted in a reduction in mortality as well as a reduced intubation rate. But these findings really need to be confirmed in prospective studies. Straub and colleagues contribute a narrative review on technology for intravascular gas exchange. Some of you will remember that 10 or 15 years ago, there was a lot of interest in placing an intravascular catheter that would produce gas exchange similar to ECMO. You could almost think of it as having the membrane inside the patient instead of external. Those initial techniques were not approved by FDA and hadn't been developed. The group provides some interesting insights into new technology and how this therapy may become available in the future. We appreciate you listening to the Restorate Care podcast and wish you the best of luck. Thank you. To receive the content of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues. Thank you.